Reggae Uprising podcast family and welcome to another episode. Now if you are fresh and new to Reggae Uprising podcast it is all about connecting the African diaspora through wisdom, overstanding, inspirational stories all backed by a soundtrack of sweet reggae music. So each and every Wednesday we share the works, the wisdom, the journey and seven reggae selections of our featured guests. Now, every now and again, we do have our special series that we feature certain works, certain points in time, certain brothers and sisters throughout our history. As you more recently will have heard our special Peter Tosh series, which we had so much great feedback on. Thank you so, so much for that. If you missed out on any of that episode and the other 160 episodes that we have in our archive, please go back and listen. And if you want to make sure that you don't miss out on any future episodes, make sure to subscribe wherever you're listening to Reggae Uprising podcast. But the best place, of course, is always via Danil.live. The link is in the description, but it is www.danieal.live. Now, when we feature our guests, we like to keep our episodes to about one hour, but we also do not like to cut off people's stories. We want to share as much of the journey of their journey as they'd like to share with all of you. So when this happens, we create multiple parts for their interview. And this is what's happened with our guest. So if you haven't already listened to part one, as this is part two, please go back to last week's episode. So this is part two of Professor Hakim Adi's interview. So like I said, if you haven't listen to part one go back and listen to that but for now we're going to get started with part two right so you told us a little bit about your love for wanting to be a history teacher can you tell us more about this and the evolution of this into the career that you have today yeah I mean I just pursued that I mean obviously one you know you go through school and um I really, again, found out for myself, well, okay, which university do you need to go to? Obviously, my my teachers didn't have much idea. My mother didn't have that much idea. So I found out, well, there are these two or three places that you can go and, uh, you know, what qualifications you needed. And I was um, fortunate enough to go to a school that encouraged sort of academic uh, excellence, you could say, and although, and that kind of helped me get the, you know, GCSEs, the O levels. I needed just about, just about, got enough, and you know, got the A levels I needed again, just about, and so, um, you know, went to, you know, left school. Actually, I left school and went to Nigeria. But when I came back from Nigeria, I went to university, um, studied history and social anthropology with the aim of being a, a school teacher. Then I got a little bit sidetracked into, uh, I was encouraged when I was a, an undergraduate to do a PhD and actually to do a PhD about reggae as it happened. 
sort of sidetracked into that and then decided that wasn't such a good idea and it wasn't going the way I wanted it to go and so I left university without completing that PhD and tried to get into teacher training college uh, got rejected everywhere I applied um, and so I was unemployed for a while and anyway lots of different things happened and uh, eventually by a strange irony I won't go into the whole story but anyway eventually I managed to, to, to get into a teacher training college and train as a, as a teacher and I began working teaching in FE college uh, different 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 things but it, it it kind of became clear that um, both in school and FE college there wasn't really much opportunity to teach African history which is what I wanted to do so I decided well I really have to go back into another PhD so I went back and did another PhD studied for seven years while I was teaching part-time, um, you know, I taught anything I could teach, a little bit of GCSE history, A-level history, and lots of different things while I was doing the PhD. And, uh, yeah, through doing the PhD, um, as I said, it took me seven years, but at the end of it, I was fortunate enough to, to get a initially a part-time job and then a, a full-time job at Middlesex University and I was also able to, to begin writing a couple of books for kids and one other book which I wrote with one of my colleagues so by the time I really started teaching in universities which was uh, um you know, in the mid-1990s. Um, yeah, I was I was on my, on a path that I hadn't kind of expected to be on in some ways, but um, yeah, I was, I was uh, to my own surprise, a kind of academic historian, and uh, or anyway, a historian who happened to work in a university, let me put it that way. And uh, yeah, it began, as I say, began writing some things and also began um, focusing on the history of African Africans in Britain in particular because that's what my, my second PhD was about, Africans in Britain. And so by kind of almost by accident, um, you know, my career as a, as a historian, um, you know, kicked off, started and uh, yeah. And everything just was a question of keeping going, really. So what did you find the most challenging for your works as a historian, would you say? Was it the people? Was it the actual sourcing the material? What What was the most challenging for you? Uh, well, there's a lot of things which are challenging. You know, one is to to get a job, to keep a job. Uh, these are very challenging things to find the time to to write um, not to be put off when things go wrong and then 
obviously yeah doing the work so when you when you write a, a book like the book i've um which has just been released in paperback first of all it takes a long time uh, to write you know took about four years probably that book but the research that you do can take even longer and that's probably the result of you know whatever 30 years research writing um and then you've got to try and work out how you're going to present it there's a lot of information how do you do that how do you structure it there are a lot of things to think about how do you just keep going how do you do it every day when you've got lots of other things to do and you'd rather be doing something else sometimes or you've got to teach or you've got to you know go through life's problems and so on so just keeping going researching writing all of these things are difficult and uh, like i say the key thing is you keep going keep going and uh, like i always say to my students the longest journey starts with a single step so you take the first step and then you take the step and you keep taking a step every day and eventually you get to the end of the journey so that's that's how it goes so for any of our listeners that might not be aware what part of history um do you specialize in and have you focused on and have you produced works in i focus mainly on well i focus uh on the history of africa and the african diaspora so that means almost everything but in particular i focus on things like the history of pan-africanism on anti-colonialism in africa on the history of African and Caribbean people in Britain. Um, the, those are probably the main things that I've, I focus on. So particularly 20th century history. Um, but the last book I wrote deals with, you know, 10,000 years of history. So I write about other things as well, things that need to be written about, um, Oh, I think need to be written about. Those are the things that I write about. My next book is probably going to be, almost certainly going to be on the anti-colonial struggle in Africa and in Britain um, in from 1945 to 1970, something like that. So I'm, I'm mainly a person who works on the 20th century, um, but yeah, in, in that kind of, those kind of areas. And could you tell our listeners of the works that you've released, so the book title, so they can look up those specific books that you've actually produced and, and released? Okay, well, uh, the first book I wrote was called uh, The 1945 Manchester Pan-African Congress Revisited. That was written a long time ago, 1995. I've written three books for children. One's called... A History of African and Caribbean Communities in Britain. One is called African Migrations. And one is called uh, Nelson Mandela, Father of the Nation. Both, All three of those books were produced for children. Two of them are still around. Then I've written a book called West Africans in Britain, 1900 to 1960. I have written another book called um, Pan-African History, K 
key figures from Africa and the African diaspora from 1787. I've written a book called um, Pan-Africanism, A History. I've written a book called Pan-Africanism and Communism, uh, The Communist International, Africa and the Diaspora. I've written a book called, uh, well, the latest book is called African and Caribbean People in Britain, A History. And then I've also edited a books. Uh, there's a book called, uh, I, have to, I have to remember the title of these books so I don't get it wrong. One of them is called Black Voices on Britain. Uh, that came out last year. A book that's come out this year, Many Struggles, New Histories of African and Caribbean People in Britain. So quite a few books I've written in my time. There may be one or two I've forgotten, but those are some of the main ones. And the link so that you can connect to those works will obviously be in the description. But before we get on to another one of your selections, I know this is a really difficult question to answer. Do you have a favourite book in terms of you really enjoyed the research and writing it? And then do you ha- also have a um, a favourite book because you feel it is the information within it is really, really important and it's almost like a legacy book where if you don't read any of my other books, I want you to read this book. So if you've got those two books for us, I know it's difficult. <laughs> That's very, very difficult. Um, I would say, yeah, I mean, all, all of them. Books are like children. You know, it's like saying, what's your favourite child? Who's your favourite child? You can't separate your children and say one is more, you know, they're all, all of my books are very important to me. Some of those books have been translated into other languages. um, So that gives them an added importance. So Pan-Africanism, a history, for example, has been translated into French, Portuguese, now being translated into Spanish and Arabic as well, so that was a that's a very very important book, I would say, um, which I think is definitely yeah. Uh, in terms of legacy, uh, African and Caribbean people in Britain: A History is another book, but a lot of work has gone into. Um, as I said, you know my teaching and research over more than 30 years has gone into that book. It's been shortlisted for the Wolfson History Prize, which is the most you know, important history prize in, in this country. So other people think it's important as well. So I'd say that is another one that's very, very important. But I would say one of my I'm going to mention another one, is Pan-Africanism and Communism, because that took me 10 years to write. A lot of research in different countries, very, very difficult to write, to research. I had all kinds of problems with publishers to get it published. And, yeah, to finally have it published, that's also been translated into Spanish, and hopefully soon will be translated into Portuguese. So, yeah, those those three... Those three may be, but the others are, you know, also important. Also have their importance as well. So it's difficult to choose. 
So like I said, we're going to leave those links in the description. But would you like to tell the listeners for yourself, you know, where the best places are to purchase those works? Um, I mean, you can always get all this stuff online. Uh, certainly Amazon will have all those books. Um, the African and Caribbean people in Britain, a history should be in all good bookshops. So Waterstones, Foils, any bookshop you'll be able to find that. Um, yeah, that's the, that's the easiest one to find. That's definitely around. The other's probably Amazon. Pan-Africanism, a history, is um, not published in English at the moment, but will be coming out in a new edition next month. So that, that should be around then. So, yeah, you can, you can check online, Google online, you'll find all of them. Amazon, you'll find all of them. There's another... Um, internet sites you'll find find most of them the children's books also are, again you can find them on Amazon even if you don't buy them on Amazon you can find them on Amazon right we're very soon going to be giving you the listeners questions but before we do we want to squeeze in another selection which is the Ethiopians why did you choose this selection well again Ethiopians is one of my favourites groups or singers, I mean it's really Leonard Dillon and others um, just a great singer amazing music over the years, this is my favourite track, you know uh, kind of Studio One classic and um, it's about you know tribulation, oppression and fighting against it and um, you know even though you know, there's constant pressure, constant oppression, constant struggle. You know, it's the struggle that's important that you keep going and so on. And this song kind of, to me, kind of conveys all of that. The, the lyrics of it are, um, you know, just uh, thoughtful lyrics and, yeah, just a great tune. Here we go with the Ethiopian. Constantly, incessantly, 
system for black people? Oh, that's a very good question. Well, it's a bit like saying, you know, is, um, you know, is, is, is gravity uh, viable or is electricity viable? Um, so I would say it is, but it depends what we mean by it. And we have to just I guess if we're not sure what gravity is we need to define that so we're not maybe not sure what electricity is we need to define that so we need to be clear what is meant by communism and that takes us into a whole you know different area but the definition that's usually given is that communism is the condition for the liberation of the wealth producers the working people so it's a condition. It's not a an ism in the sense of a system as such, but it's a condition for liberation. So um, that is important to have that condition to bring about that condition where those who produce the wealth actually exercise control over it. And you know, in the present systems that exist, whether in Britain or. Africa, the Caribbean or US or anywhere, that's not the case. Um, you know, people in general collectively produce things, produce all the wealth, all the abundance, and we live in a pretty, one of the richest countries of the world. And yet people are still going to soup kitchens, you know, people haven't got a place to live, people can't afford to go to university, people can't get the health care they need, and so on and so forth. So it's about bringing about a situation where those things exist and where the majority of people are the decision makers and have a say in how those things are organised within this country or any particular country. So that's how that's what I understand by it. And that's why I'm interested in it. And that's why I think it's viable for anybody and everybody who wants to be 
liberated and was of that decision-making power. So, yeah. How do you balance that with the fact that it was invented and proliferated by a select class of people who largely profited from slavery and colonisation? Well, first of all, I'd have to disagree with the, the question. So, um, but leaving aside that I don't accept the premise of the question. Um, Which part don't you accept? Well, all of it. Can you explain? <laughs> well, when you say something is invented, it's um, it's uh, a misunderstanding of what um, what. If, if it's referring to communism, it's a bit of a misunderstanding of what it, what it is, I suppose. As I said, it's a, it's a condition, so it's not invented by anybody. Um, and if you're talking about those people who, um, you know, wrote, wrote about it or attempted to implement it, um then they would no more benefited from these things than, you know, we benefit from them. You know, if, if you live in a, a capital-centered society, which has wealth extracted from the exploitation of Africans, as Britain has, then you could say everybody benefits you know, you benefit from the wealth that exists in the country. Um, so the, the question is not really one that's, um, you know, uh, that has any sort of basis in reality, as far as I can see. So it's a bit difficult to, to respond to it. And next question. Can you show historically the same morals, values and structures of Marxism that were instituted in pre-colonial Africa? For example, joint ownership, collective health care. It's interesting that all the questions are about the same thing. Are they all coming from the same person? All the questions aren't the same, no. <laughs> they seem very similar to me. Well, they're because based all... on your work. So obviously people are going to ask questions on the work that you've done. Well, one of my works is one of my books, and I've mentioned all of them, is about um, Pan-Africanism and communism. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've asked three questions on that on the subject of communism. Well, the the questions will be grouped together in the the similar subjects rather than going jumping from subject to subject. Okay. Well, I don't know how many questions there are, so you're you're just asking me one question after another, um, which all seem to be about the same thing. So that's why I responded in that way. But that's fine. I mean, I can respond to the question. But um, So if you mean, were some societies in Africa egalitarian or um, in which people made decisions in common? Yeah, you can find some societies in, you can find societies like that in all parts of the world, but including Africa. There were societies that existed in uh, historic, historically which um, 
were like that. But there were also societies that had states as well. Um, and in fact, Africa was the first continent to develop state formations. And state formations usually mean that um, there's a mechanism for some people to rule over others. So in Africa, you can find both both states and both societies that were relatively equal and democratic and so on. Yeah. So our next question is, um, who do you think the biggest tribe will be in Africa in 10 years? I don't know anything about tribes. What tribes in Africa? Do you mean nations? I don't know what that means. What are, what's a tribe? Yes, you can call them nations. Well, I prefer to call them nations because uh, well, I don't understand why they would be called tribes. I mean, but maybe people don't understand what a tribe is. Are the English a tribe? I don't know why people use the word tribe to refer to Africa. It seems like a very Eurocentric term to me. So um, I think I think the the person that's put the question is is asking, you know, there's different groups of people within within Africa. Which do yeah, you think why, will be the biggest within Africa in ten years? Yeah, but why aren't they referred to as nations? Is what they are. I don't know. I didn't ask the question. I, know, <laughs> I can't really tell you that. I'm I'm asking the question because um, you know that's anyway a bit problematic to me that people you know using these kinds of terms to refer to people in Africa is uh, is um, anyway to me it's a little bit a little bit problematic. Um, so in terms of nations, well, it, that's also a bit complicated um, because you know some nations are split between different countries and so on and so forth um, in terms of uh, population I don't know actually I don't know who's going to be in 10 years time I can't I wouldn't be able to predict that okay and next question is how do returning members of the diaspora deal with the Mzunga classing? How do they deal with what? Returning to where and to what? How do returning members of the diaspora deal with the Mzunga classing? So the translation of that, that's a Swahili word and it means foreigner. So being yeah. classed as a foreigner. Yeah. Well, um, I suppose it depends on your. Um, I suppose it. I suppose it depends how you think of yourself and where you're going to, because um, if you are, you know, going to. Even if you're a person of continental African heritage and you've been brought up in this country for X number of years and you return to your parents countries of origin it's quite possible that people might think of you or refer to you in that way that you know that's just uh, that does happen and so you one has to understand how 
that's the first thing to understand that um, not everybody may kind of welcome you as long lost family or even you know closely related family but then you know people tend to judge people by how they act how they behave how they um, what they contribute and so I think that's always important what do you do how do you behave what do you contribute and then you know people usually and and also how do you um, talk to people about the world and about your place in it, about your relationship to Africa and so on. And when you explain things to people, people often have to be told things. Then, you know, these kind of issues can generally be, um, you know, resolved and people have a good time. You know, there are lots of people from the diaspora who return to Africa all the time, different parts of Africa, and live there and exist there very, very happily and very well. Do you think returning diaspora's cultural difference and journeys will lead to future conflicts in the same way that the returning Creole and Sierra Leoneans did under British rule, which culminated in the Sierra Leoneans' civil war a hundred years later? Uh, Well, that's... uh, I'm not sure, again, whether I would go along with the premise of the question, but um, I think that uh, it depends how people return and in what way they behave in the countries they return to. I mean, the situation, situation in Sierra Leone is a little bit different, maybe to the way in which people are returning today because large numbers of people returned to Sierra Leone under the auspices we can say of the uh, British government Um, and sometimes directly particularly in the 19th century as um, those who were recaptives as they were called people who'd been kidnapped uh, and trafficked and then were released and returned returned by the British and the British Navy in particular. And so that created a very special situation in Sierra Leone which was, was kind of utilised by by Britain as Sierra Leone was its first colony. Um, and in some regards those returnees um, were treated differently, we're in a different situation and were utilised by um, Britain, some of them. Um, And so that that distinction between those who had returned and those who had never left persisted in Sierra Leone just as it persisted in Liberia and in other places. Um, So I think that was a very special situation. I'm not sure if that's the main Uh, cause of the conflict in Sierra Leone so that's another issue but is people returning from the diaspora likely to um, create a situation like that I wouldn't think so I wouldn't think so because the situation is very different now there's no longer a 
in Africa and people are returning in a different way. So no, I wouldn't think so. What do you think about the African Union's idea to make Swahili the diplomatic slash trade language of Africa? Well, people always argue about, uh, you know, which languages should be used or which languages should be adopted, um, whether regionally in Africa or, um, or continentally in Africa. So having a language like Swahili, which is widely spoken and now is being widely taught in other parts of the continent, um, I think it's quite a good idea. I mean, one could choose other languages. There are other, maybe other uh, possibilities, but it's certainly one of the widely spoken. And so, yeah, why not? How how do you see current global geopolitical events in the Middle and Far East affecting Africa currently and in the future? Uh, I assume that that means Asia, West Asia and East Asia. They've put the, um, the Middle and Far East. Yeah, well, the, these again are terms that we should be a little bit careful about because uh, they're, they're kind of really Eurocentric terms. But if they're referring to Western Asia or they're referring to Palestine, um, there are, I mean, I think one of the things about um, the, I mean, lots of things could be said about it current conflict in Palestine is actually quite complicated, one could say, um, without going into the history of it. But um, I think it affects all of us, it affects everybody in that a great injustice is being uh, perpetuated because, um, you know, the Palestinians are being denied their rights and particularly the right to their homeland and being that denial of rights being supported by all the big powers the US Britain and others as well as the um, you know the, the state of Israel so that's problematic in that it means that you know injustice has a uh, has kind of the support of the big powers it's a bit like, you know, um, injustice in well, whatever, or the invasion of Libya or intervention in Congo or any of these interventions. They are the, largely the work of the big powers and against the interests of those on the ground. So as far as people of African descent or of the African continent are concerned, um, they show that no faith can be placed in the big powers or their organizations like the UN and so on. And um, we can see that also with what's happening in Haiti at the moment. Um, these things are sanctioned by the big powers and the organizations like the UN. And so they have an, an impact, they have a kind of global impact because they lead to the continuation of injustice and so on. They also lead to global instability and wars 
both regional wars and wider scale wars. And again, if we look at the situation in Libya or Congo, again, one has been massive. Or Sierra Leone, where there's been external intervention, it's created even bigger problems. So having that instability in the world is a very bad thing for everybody concerned, Africans included. Um, have you ever heard of Iboga? No. Uh, so they put, it is a bark of a plant used to incite spiritual journeys that take you to your forebearers. So in reference to this, they put, if you could go on a journey and meet four people of the African diaspora, who would they be? Um, and you can only ask them one question each, and what would the question be? Um, four people, one question. One question each. So they could be uh, different questions from what they've put here. Uh, yeah, there could be different well, questions. Well, that could, this could go on forever. Uh, four people. I would say four people from the diaspora. The African diaspora. So Africa or the African diaspora. Okay, Africa or the African diaspora. I would say Alice Kinlock would be one. Um, What would the question be? The question would be, um, can she tell me what she did when she went returned to Africa? Um, so that's one. She, I mean, there's also a question, what is the African diaspora? But anyway, let, let's leave that. So Alice Kinlock would be one. Um, oh, you said Africa and the African diaspora or the African diaspora? Sorry, I've forgotten what you said now. Both. Both. Okay, so Alice Kinlock's fine. Okay, so then, um, one question, but I would say another. What would be Amical Cabral? Uh, what would I ask Cabral? I would ask him to explain more about how he developed unity amongst people from different backgrounds. Um, and then a third would be um, a third would be I don't know, maybe uh, Frederick Douglass. And I'd ask Frederick Douglass if he ever met William Cuffey. And then the last would be, um, oh, I don't know. Um, It would be, uh, let me think. I would say it would be my, probably my grandfather. And I would ask him all kinds of questions. <laughs> no, they put which... specifically one. So if you only had one, imagine you've got like maybe, I don't know, a couple of, minute com- couple of minutes as a conversation or something. And you can only, there's only time for you to ask a question and then for him to answer it. What would, what would it be? I'd say, can he tell me something about his... Um, what could he tell me about his father? Okay. Okay. And is there reasons why you chose those specific four people? Oh, 
well, they're just interesting people. I mean, obviously, Cabral is one of the most important um, fighters for African liberation in the 20th century. Very important character. Frederick Douglass, one of the most important fighters for the rights of African-Americans in the 19th century. Alice Kinloch, the founder of modern Pan-Africanism. And my grandfather, because I never met my grandfather, who was a you know a very interesting character by all accounts, and so I'd want to ask him about his father or his parents, probably actually rather than his father, his parents. So yeah, those four. Okay, are you aware that they used to worship the Black Madonna in London, specifically Willesden, a thousand years ago? Yes. For our listeners, would you be able to elaborate on that? Because I've just got this question with no elaboration. So could you elaborate on that to explain that for the listeners? Well, not very much. I'm not uh, very familiar with it. But, I mean, the, the idea of a black Madonna, um, or, yeah, uh, was, you know, it was something that was was celebrated, or she was celebrated and worshipped not only in Wilsden, but throughout Europe in ancient times um so yeah i don't know all the details of it but uh, all the the details of that um uh what's the word i'm searching for that cult of worship or that um but that certainly that certainly occurred in ancient times the same person is then put do you think the eroding loss of this knowledge and the changing of iconography was a major or minor factor, sorry, major or minor factor of the racism we now face? Uh, not, no, I don't really, no. Uh, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I think that there were other, you know, key people, like there were, there were, saints who were Africans, St. Morris, for example, um, and there were others who were revered in ancient times. Um, And that didn't prevent, um, you know, the rise of human trafficking across the Atlantic, colonial rule and so on, that those um, systems of oppression come from somewhere else. And the ideas associated with them arose, um, you know, in opposition to other ideas, positive ideas that may have existed about Africans in Europe. So, no, I don't think that's, uh, it would have had that, that impact. And our final question, what do you think of the maxim, either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself turn into a villain in relation to black leaders past present and future um well it depends on i mean people should people should be be cautious about um you know, who, the, who are those who become leaders or who are those who are accepted as leaders? Um, but I 
ideally you want to have leaders that actually you know represent the interests of the people they they claim to be leading or the people they are leading and who um, devote themselves to that struggle and to those needs and uh, when they can't do that any longer they step aside and let other people take up those issues so I think the problem is um, you know some leaders die young not all not all good leaders die young there's some people who have been around for you know um, a while but some some people do die young because of the nature of the struggle at that particular time if it's an armed struggle or if it's a struggle which leads to assassination uh, Malcolm X or Fred Hampton or Lumumba or Cabral or whoever it might be um, but the key thing is to have is for everybody to be a leader because if everybody's a leader then we have a different kind of struggle really which is not dependent on one or two people but where everybody plays a a leadership role and that's really what we need in the you know in the 21st century we're going to move on to your next selection which is i roy peace can you please tell us why you chose this selection well again this is a very it's a great tune uh it's a it's a very it's a good example of you know when i was a teenager growing up this was the kind of music i listened to this on this particular track um it's a great example of you know djing or toasting but it also has a kind of message in it as well um which is you know about the need for peace but also the need for liberation too. so anyway it's just a great track i hope you've enjoyed this week's episode if you'd like to connect with this week's guest all of the links are in the description as well as regular uprising podcast links if you haven't already subscribed please do so via daniel.live so that's d a n i e a l dot live that link is also in the description make sure you're back here next wednesday for a fresh and new episode i hope you have a wonderful week and as always blessed love all over the world you can hear the people calling for peace as i will tell it to you but i say you got to find some kind of peace in your heart as i will tell you we will never part as i would say Whole lot of cats are looking for war, as I would say. While they look for war, they got to stay far. Maybe they got to stay the Venus and Mao, you know. We never can find some kind of star, as I would tell you. If you deal with some kind of war, you really got to stay far, as I would say. Catering for the mood, the people living today is I would tell it to you, come on down with me Each and every one is out to liberate To live for liberation and that would be great Brothers, you got to be free from the chain of slavery Shout the word love for Mary Lee as I would say Get on the track for the 
people start with double dot. Don't you be like my man called Mr. Mac, cause I would tell you down the rhythm track. When I'm using kids, you got to stick with it, you know. Gotta keep on moving like a JoJo. Like some kind of mojo, as I would say. Cats, you gotta move around and play. And gladness is madness So you gotta have some kind of sadness around you You gotta step on down and give me your trouble And I'll tell you I'll be on the scene of the double As I would tell you, baby Never try to have no heat in your mind Find a peace you will find as I would say Was I would say Deal with no violence You will go down in silence Be some kind of half scandal So I'm over the fence I really don't mean this to no pretense You know You be you be You be you be Show me do me do me do me Come on up with me And be my spree I'll be free like a bird in a tree War is ugly as I would tell you But I see ugly I mean double ugly For me they want the double Put away your trouble like I say I sleep and die the move of